Welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. Relationships are so important, and yet they can be so difficult. The pandemic, social media, and a divided country have not helped. How do we develop new relationships or strengthen the ones that we have? How do we repair ones that seem to be broken? Listen to this week's talk from the series Through Thick and Thin as we explore ways to develop the kinds of friendships that will enrich our lives. Well, good morning. Now, one day when I was about 15 years old, I had a friend from the neighborhood over to my house. We were up in my bedroom. I think we were looking at some model planes that I glued together and painted. And at a certain point, I had to leave the room. And so I said, I'll be right back. And when I came back in the room, this friend, who really had not come over real often, but this friend had my wallet in his hand, and he was kind of fingering the cash a little bit. And so it struck me as being strange, but, um, you know, I trusted him, so I didn't think it was a big deal. And then he asked me, how much money do you think you have in your wallet? He was trying to figure out whether I knew. And I said, well, I think there's probably seven or eight dollars in there. I'm not sure. And he said, yes, you're right. It's it's seven dollars. And he handed me back my wallet. And shortly after that, he left. About a week and a half later, I was with another friend. And we were talking, and he asked me, he said, did did so-and-so come over to your house about a week and a half ago? And I said, yeah. He said, well, were you up in your bedroom, and did he at one point grab your wallet and ask you how much money was in there? And I said, yeah, and now I'm getting a little suspicious, like, what's going on? And he said, well, your friend stole $2 from you. That's why he asked you how much was in there. He wanted to see if he could get away with it, but he was bragging to me about it. And so I just wanted to check on it and see if it was true. Apparently, it really did happen. He said, I just wanted you to know because if you have this this friend over to the house again, you need to keep an eye on him. I was very surprised and disappointed to find out that this particular friend would steal $2 from me. It wasn't the amount, of course. You know, I'd give him $2, ask for $2. I'd be happy to give it, but the fact that he would steal it, and you know, it's, it's wrong to steal, period, but it seems to me it's doubly wrong to steal from a friend or someone that loves you, someone that cares for you, or a neighbor. It seems doubly wrong because trust has been violated. One of the wisest guys who ever lived, Solomon, wrote in Proverbs 3, 29, he said, don't plan any harm against your neighbor, for he trusts you and lives near you. Don't plot against your neighbor. He trusts you, and he lives next to you. And part of what I think Solomon was saying here was, if you do something to harm your neighbor, it's going to come back on you because you're your neighbor. Some of us uh, have had, I think, um, I've heard stories anyway of ones who had neighbors that were just, it was just horrendous, (laughs) and they couldn't move. And that's the situation you're in. Now, after this event happened, I don't believe I I played with that kid anymore. I I don't believe that we ever did anything again, that our friendship was actually severed over two lousy dollars. Now, it's maybe understandable. I mean, all of us would understand that if you can't trust someone, you you don't want to be their friend. But as I've thought about this, just the question has come to my mind, how could this have ended differently? What would have been a better ending to this story? 
And I think the better ending would have been that we would have reconciled, that I could have brought it to his attention, I could have forgiven him, our friendship could have continued. Instead, in one sense, this relationship was worth $2. I was willing to set it aside just for $2. Now, today we're continuing our series titled Through Thick and Thin, and I want to talk about sticking with people, especially if they wrong us, sticking with people through thick and thin. And these days... There's not a lot of loyalty people have toward other people. There's not a lot of commitment that people make or faithfulness to other people. And I want to suggest that that God is a God of faithfulness. We live in a culture that I'd call a throwaway culture. If something doesn't value, we don't value it anymore, it doesn't benefit us anymore, we just throw it aside. And I think relationships fit into that as well. So somebody wrongs you and you're done with them. Somebody offends you in some way, and you say, well, I don't need your friendship anyway. Somebody has a different opinion than you do, maybe about politics. And we say, well, I'm done with you. You know, if you've got that perspective, you're no friend of mine. I've heard people say things like that. What's a little sad to me about that one is that I I feel like what's happening is that we are loving our perspective more than a person who's been created in the very image of God. God created us in his very image, and that person is of great value, even if they're wrong about their politics from our perspective. Can we love people despite that? A couple weeks ago, I was reading in the local newspaper a letter that someone sent to one of those advice columnists, and it was a letter involving a friendship that broke up. If I remember the details correctly, these two women had been friends, best friends, not just friends, best friends for 20 years. And they both ended up at this social event. I think it was actually a reception at a wedding or something. And one of the women drank too much. And then she announced she's going to be driving home. And anyone standing there would have realized she should not be driving home. But her friend, the one who wrote the letter to the editor, said, I grabbed the keys. I wasn't going to allow her to do that. And then she arranged to have her friend dropped off at her house and taken care of. Then early the next morning, she drove to the house to return just the car keys so that the woman could get to work or whatever she needed to do. But she knocked on the door, and the woman wouldn't open the door. And she kept knocking, and there was no response. And then she started calling throughout the day. She just wanted to check on her friend. How are you doing? But her friend wouldn't even pick up the phone. And two months had passed, and there had been no communication. And I thought, wow. I mean, this, was a, this person was a real friend. And it was a relationship that had extended so long, and yet this other woman would set it aside because she was bothered by something her friend did. It is too bad. The thing about it is that I think we need to understand that God has very high views of relationships and friendships. Greatest commands in all the Bible are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. These are the greatest commands, to love people well, to love God well, but oftentimes we don't. As a society, I'm convinced if we cannot learn to be more committed to each other, we're going to fall apart. We've got to learn to forgive one another. We've got to learn what it means to love unconditionally by the grace of God, the help of the Spirit, to stick with people through thick and thin. But I know it's not easy. But this is the way our God is. 
Our God is someone who is a God of reconciliation. That's, that's, that's what his heartbeat is, is this restoring relationships, starting with himself and then with other people. This is the way our God is. He pursues relationships, and he sticks with us through thick and thin. Hebrews 13, 5, we read, Your life should be free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. The word forsake means to abandon or to desert. If you have a relationship with God through faith in Christ, this is the promise that God has given to you. I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. And yet this is what often we do. Now, today I want to look at uh, one passage of Scripture that, from my perspective, presents the clearest way in which we should view what God is like. I mean, there are lots of places in the Bible that describe what God is like, but I want to look at a story where I believe this is the main way in which God wants to be seen or remembered. And I say this because this, what we're going to look at here today, the description of God is repeated several times in the Bible, this exact description Our passage begins in Exodus 19. It encompasses many chapters, but let's begin reading in Exodus 19. Let me first set the context. Moses had led the people of Israel out of Egypt, as you remember, through amazing miracles, and they they traveled for three months, people of Israel out of Egypt, and were making their way across this wilderness area, and they came to Mount Sinai, and you maybe remember the story, and then And then Moses was called up on the mountain, and God had something to say to Moses. And we we read what it was in Exodus 19.4 through 6, where God said to Moses, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to me. Now, if you will listen to me and carefully keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although all the earth is mine. And you'll be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you're to say to the Israelites. And so he went back down and he communicated, this is what God is is wanting. He wants to be your God and he wants you to be his people. What I didn't realize, and some of you have heard me talk about this before, but what I didn't realize until my last trip to Israel was that what was happening on Mount Sinai was a wedding invitation. And ever since I learned that, I've been watching through the pages of the Bible and raised, that's exactly what it was. It was a wedding invitation. God was saying, I choose you, and he was asking Israel, choose me. That's, that's, what it was, that's what it was about. And if you continue reading, you'll come to the terms of this agreement then, which I would call the vows. It might seem kind of odd, but the Ten Commandments were like the vows, This is what this relationship will look like. I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. And by the way, the same wedding idea is communicated in the New Testament as well, of course, with with Jesus and the church. We're called, Ephesians 5, the bride of Christ. And so he wants to be our husband. We are his bride. It's the exact same image image as the Old Testament. God wanted this, this, like a marriage relationship with us and with them. So, beginning in verse, or Exodus 20, verse 1 then, God begins to lay out what the covenant looks like. 
We read, Then God spoke all these words, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And then he goes on and gives the other Ten Commandments. You know, obey your parents, don't lie, don't steal, don't murder, things like that. But did you see how the thing started? He talks about the fact that, you know, I'm the one that brought you out, and, and, and here's the starting point, here's the beginning of the vows. No other gods, or I'd say rather non-gods, but me. You're, you're not to have, I'm choosing you, you're not to have anyone else. It's just, a, I'm telling you, it's a, like a, a wedding thing. Don't, don't make an idol, don't bow to it. It's, 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 it's you and me. And, it was, and he was calling for them to, to make a pledge of fidelity to him. And, and they agreed to it. These people had been lovingly and miraculously led out of Egypt, and they'd seen God at work, and so they said yes to this. And so we pick up the story next to this 24-7. We read, he, Moses, then took the covenant scroll and read it aloud to the people, they responded, we will do and obey everything that the Lord has commanded. They said yes to the covenant. We want you to be our God, and we want to be your people. We say yes to you. And originally it was written on a scroll, although it's going to take on more, a more permanent form here in a minute with the, with the Ten Commandments, the tablets. As soon as they agreed to this, Moses did something kind of odd. He took some of the, the blood that was from the sacrifice made to seal this covenant, and he sprinkled the people with it. He just t- tossed out the, the blood. Very, very uh, odd, but what it indicates is that this, this was a particular kind of covenant, and this is key to the story. This was called a blood covenant. And I'll explain the significance of this in a minute, but this was the type of covenant that's sealed through the shedding of blood. Now, remember, Jesus, of course, did the same thing. On the night he was betrayed, he held up that cup, and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. So the cross is really about a blood covenant also that God wants to make with us. And again, we'll see the significance of this in a little bit. But as soon as all this happened... As soon as they agreed and the blood was spread or whatever, God called Moses up on the mountain and God was going to put the covenant down in stone tablets. And I would call that the wedding ring of sorts. It's, it's the sign of the agreement between the two of them. And that's what a wedding ring is. A wedding ring is basically saying, I'm, I'm taken, sorry, the rest of you. Okay, you chose me, I chose you. Anyone sees the wedding ring, they say, oh, that, one, that person's off limits. You're supposed to be stuck with me. <laughs> Maybe in my case, it's stuck with. But anyway, stuck with me, the two of you. And so God's going to give a, a covenant agreement through this, the Ten Commandments. So Moses went up on the mountain, but he was gone a little bit too long because God explained some other things, some of the finer details of this covenant. So we pick up the story in Exodus 32.1. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Aaron was, of course, Moses' brother, come, make us a god, this can be translated gods, plural, who will go before us because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. 
Then Aaron replied to them, take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. I have to admit I laugh at this one because it talks about the rings on, the, on your wives and your sons, sons and daughters. It's like people think the ring in the ear is a new thing. They were doing it way back here. You know, they wear, but anyway, they took them off. All the people took off the gold rings that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from their hands, fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made it into an image of a calf. Then he said, Israel, this is your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And by the way, God earlier here also is God's, plural, or can be. Then he made an announcement, there'll be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. Early the next morning they arose, offered burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink, and then they got up to play. And Paul refers to this incident in 1 Corinthians 10, 7 and 8, when it says he went up to, they went up to play. The implication is they got involved with sexual immorality at this point. Things had become completely out of hand. Now, this whole agreement between God had been so clear, it could not have been more explicit. No other gods, no idols, nothing. You can't begin to craft something that could capture my glory. Don't you dare bow down to anything like that because I'm a jealous God. And so in Exodus 32 and verse 10, this is what God said to Moses, now leave me alone so my anger can burn against them and I can destroy them, then I'll make you into a great nation. Now, this might seem harsh. I mean, God is saying here, I'll wipe them all out and start with you, Moses, which is disturbing, I would suppose, in our culture, except let's come back to what this covenant was. This was a covenant of blood. In biblical times, a covenant of blood, they would sacrifice an animal to seal the covenant, and if you broke your end of the deal, the penalty was death. That's what it was. The penalty was death. So when God says, let me wipe them out, that's justice. That's what the covenant required. Another way to put it, in, in those times, it, it would be like, a, we, we call it idolatry, but it would be like adultery against God, which required stoning. They were to be put to death. That's what, that's what the requirement was. But Moses interceded for the people. In Exodus 32, 31, we read, Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, these people have committed a grave sin. They've made a God of gold for themselves. Now, if you would only forgive their sin, but if not, please erase me from the book you've written. Most scholars seem to believe that the book that's described here is called, the, it's the book of life. And so to get your name erased from this book means to die. So what Moses is saying if, is if you're gonna wipe them all out, don't start a new nation through me, wipe me out as well. But now we get to the heart of the point. God said yes to Moses. He listened to Moses. There would be some penalties for what happened, but he listened to Moses. And I think it did something in Moses' own heart toward God because his prayer in Exodus thirty-three eighteen. I don't think anyone had ever prayed this before, but it was, we read, then Moses said, please show me, your glory, or let me see your glory. Moses was asking to see God in his full glory at this point. I want to see what you're like, God. He was drawn to God. Now, he didn't know what he was asking for because God explained to him, you, I, you can't look at me and live. 
you look on my face, you cannot look at me and live. We can't tolerate. The human body is too fragile to look upon God. It, I, the only thing I can think of as an example is that if you look at the sun, you'll go blind. I mean, if you stare at it. Because our eyes can't handle the brightness, the glory of the sun. How much more God? But Moses asked, show me your glory. And what God said to him is, what I will do is I'll, I'll put you in the, a crevice among the rocks on the mountain. And I'll, I'll put my hand to block the way so you can't see. And then I will walk by you. And when it's safe to look, I'll remove my hand so that you'll see behind but not the front. And that's what God did. Exodus 34, 5 through 7, the Lord came down in a cloud. He stood there with him there and proclaimed his name Yahweh, which is the self-existent one, I am that I am. Then the Lord passed in front of him and he made a proclamation. He declared who he was, what he was like. Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. I am amazed that this is how God revealed himself to Moses on this occasion. Now, it's clear from the passage that God says there are consequences for sin. This idea, by the way, of I will pass on the sins of the fathers to their children and grandchildren to the fourth generation, the idea behind that I understand from the Hebrew is it's saying basically that the sins that we commit impact the, the following generations, and we know that's true. If there's particular things in your family that were really bad, you know it passes on to your kids and then their kids and their kids' kids. And that's just the, the wages of sin. It's just, it, it has a, a tail. But, but God come, came out and how did he pro present himself? He emphasized his great grace and kindness. It's 36 and 37 again, the Lord passed in front of him. He proclaimed Yahweh. Here I am. He's announcing himself like a king. Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God. Grace has to do with extending kindness to the undeserving. He's slow to anger, rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. That is what God is like. Now, I don't know, a few years ago, it, this hit me. This was, as I was reading it, it just wasn't what I was expecting, even though I knew the story. Because what I was expecting from my upbringing would have been that when God passed by Moses, he would have announced himself in this way, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I am righteous, just, and pure. That's what I would have expected, something along those lines, like the song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And God, of course, had revealed himself to Israel in his holiness when they first arrived at Mount Sinai, you remember the top half of the mountain was on fire with the smoke going up to the heavens. God was revealing, I am holy. But after what Israel did here, I would have expected that to be the reminder. I would have expected that God would pass by and say, this is what I want you to tell those Israelites. I am holy. Don't you do this again. A God of justice, you will get what you deserve. But that's, that's not what it was. He emphasized his grace, 
and kindness and compassion and forgiveness. That's what he emphasized. Now, this exact description of God appears in many places than the rest of the Bible. It is the way in which I think God wants us to emphasize what he's like. Our God is love. He is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and he's a God who forgives. Let me give you just one example where this is used. You remember the story of Jonah? Jonah was the guy that was commanded by God to go preach to the city of Nineveh, which was part of a building, a Syrian empire. Uh, he didn't want to do it. The message Jonah was told to deliver was, in 40 days, destruction is coming to your city. And Jonah did not want to deliver that particular message because, frankly, he wanted them to die. That's what he wanted, because they were ancient enemies of Israel, and they were particularly cruel. From my research, there was no more cruel group of warriors than this group. They just was, were just violent. And Jonah didn't want to deliver that message, so he jumped on a ship heading in the other direction. But if you know the story, you know God caused a storm to rise up, and then the sailors were instructed by God to throw him overboard, and he was, he was swallowed by a big fish, which, by the way, I think really happened. I know it's impossible, but we believe in a God of miracles. And from within that fish... He repented, and, it's, and the text indicates he made a vow to God. And I'm sure what the vow is this, I promise if you get me out of here, I'll do what you ask me to do. And the fish spit him out on the land, probably was the quickest way, by the way, to get there. He was going to have to travel like 400 miles, but he got in a fish. It's like a submarine. Made his way there. I mean, he got there faster than he would have otherwise, I'm, I think. But anyway, he preached the message, and then he went up on a mountain and he watched. He's, he was on the mountain on day 40. He wanted to see, is God going to punish them? The problem is that the people actually listened. And they repented of their sin and their wickedness. And, and God decided not to punish them. And Jonah became furious. And we find out why he's furious in Jonah 4, 1 through 3, where we read, but Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious he prayed to the Lord, please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? It's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are, and then here it is, are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to become angry, rich in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. He said, now, Lord, please take my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Now, again, Jonah's anger toward the Assyrians or the people of Nineveh was understandable, but what he was so blind to was that that same God of compassion and grace and forgiveness had extended that to him while he was in the, the fish. And he couldn't possibly understand extending that to other people. And that's where the problem is. That's where the disconnect. This is the way our God is like. But getting back and wrapping up our story here, Moses was then told by God to cut out some more stone tablets and bring them up on the mountain, and God would, would carve them like he did the previous ones. That's remarkable. It, it was so, it's so encouraging because it, God was saying, I'm giving you another shot at this. You completely broke the covenant, and the payment is death. But I'm inviting you back into this agreement even though you forsook me because 
I'm gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. Now, if this is how we know God is and what he's like, we're called to be imitators of God. And what God's love is like, of course, is found all over, but one of the key passages is 1 Corinthians 13. You know, it's called the love chapter. But verses 7 and 8 are particularly strong. It says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. That's the kind of love that God calls us to. In Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, Paul wrote, therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Imitate him because you're one of his dearly loved ones and walk in love as the Messiah or Christ also loved us. He died for us. And he gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Imitate God who loves us as his children. Imitate Christ who loved us so much as to die for us. And Peter put in 1 Peter 4.8, Above all, maintain an intense love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. That's what I'm asking for here, that by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit, that we overlook a multitude of sins. Now, I'm not suggesting we put up with everything. I'm not suggesting that we don't deal with the wrongs. In fact, I think true forgiveness is facing them squarely. I was wronged. And so that's sometimes what it is. What I am suggesting is that we learn to love better. I'm not suggesting that you maintain a relationship with an abusive person. That's not what God is calling us to do. But I am saying that maybe we need a little bit more stick to Maybe we need to be a little bit more like our God because he's gracious. He extends grace to the undeserving. He's compassionate. He's, he's full of what's... The, the uh, Hebrew word is chesed. It's a word that means covenant loyalty. In other words, he makes a commitment to us. And he is willing to do this with Israel. And he still is going to stick with them until Christ reigns on this earth from my perspective. Now, God did become angry. He did become furious, and some things should cause that. There are some people that have mistreated you or me, and it, it makes sense that you be angry, but is there another way that we can approach this? One of the weeks, by the way, I'd like to talk about forgiveness. But I want to close with Proverbs 17, 17, where we read, A friend loves at all times. A friend loves at all times. And a brother is born for a difficult time. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that you send your son for us, even though we didn't deserve it. We read that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were like sheep going astray, you sent your son to, to reconcile us to yourself, to pay the price for our sin so that we could be accepted as your children. And we love that commitment you've made to us, but help us to love better the ones who are willing to forgive and who take upon ourselves your grace and compassion and your forgiveness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.